you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Mark, the book of Mark, chapter 7, our scripture reading will come from verses 1 through 13. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. At this point in time, Jesus is about a year away from his last supper with the disciples. He's about a year away. Two-thirds of his ministry is already completed. One more Passover, the Passover in which he will die on the cross for our sins, will happen. And here he is finishing up his ministry in northern Galilee, and the Pharisees come up all the way from Jerusalem in order to, in their attempt to entrap him. Verse 1 of chapter 7, the scriptures read, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they came, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. There are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that." Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, which gives wisdom, which leads us to life, which is an expression of who you are. So we pray once again that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might see great and wonderful things from it. In Jesus' name, amen. In 
In the Southwest Pacific, there are a number of islands in which some of the natives had very little contact, if any contact whatsoever, with the modern world and its technological advances. So when World War II came, they were mesmerized, these natives who lived on these islands. They were mesmerized by the Japanese and later the Allied forces as they came. They marched in perfect order. They constructed airstrips. They had hand gestures directing the airplanes that would come in. These incredible flying behemoths would land and they would bring all sorts of exotic goods. The Japanese and later the Allied soldiers shared some of these things, some of this cargo they had with the natives. Things like Coca-Cola, things like canned foods, things like clothing, things like basic medicines and other things which they enjoyed, they liked. But when the war ended, the visitors to these natives all left, they left for good. The natives were disappointed, and the natives began thinking to themselves, if we would just mimic the same actions as these people who had come, then these heavenly visitors, these behemoth machines would come and bring us more gifts, more healing medicines. And so they built a control tower out of rope and bamboo. They made a runway out of straw. They made clothes that resembled the military uniforms that they saw and that they observed. They carved and wore simple headsets exactly like what they saw of these individuals who were there. And they mimicked the hand gestures to no one but up to the sky. They were known as the cargo cults of the Southwest Pacific. The cargo cults because they believed if they would just do all of these things that they would be able to get what their hearts desired. They would be able to get the same results. Their worship was of these planes that would come down, whom they thought would come down from heaven, bringing them whatever they would have wanted. And from our vantage point, we would have looked at that and said, what a waste of time. They have no idea what they are doing. All of that is in vain. As nothing appeared from the sky, all of that was a waste of time. There was no value in any of that meaningless work which they did. Empty ritual and worship of some airplane which we knew wasn't any sort of God, but to them, they believed that it would bring them whatever they wanted in their heart's desire. Empty ritualistic worship. That is the subject of what Jesus addresses here. Worship to God is of supreme importance to him because everyone worships something. You and I, we all worship something. And if it is not the worship of God, the creator, then it is the worship of what is created. And sometimes that includes ourselves. We were saved in order to worship God. And God desires that we worship Him in a way that honors Him. But the religious leaders of that day, 
were leading the people down a path in which it was not the worship of God, but like the cargo cults, it was waving flags and building structures and phony clothing in order to get what they wanted for themselves so that they could somehow meet whatever standard they had set up. Now, to give you some context as to where we've been and where we're going in this particular passage in Mark chapter 7, this passage comes after the feeding of the 5,000, the pinnacle of Jesus' miracles, the one that is the most uh, visible, the one that is significant, the only one aside from the resurrection that is mentioned in all four Gospels, and in the feeding of the 5,000, which is really the feeding of the 20 or 30,000 people, John chapter 6 tells us the heart of the people. Because after Jesus leaves, they follow him around. And in John chapter 6, verse 26, the people follow him after they have already been fed with a free dinner. In 626, Jesus answers them and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. They had a free meal and they wanted more. Not only that, you might recall from last week, they wanted him to be king. They wanted to make him king. Jesus takes that whole incident, that whole miracle, and he takes the opportunity to tell them in John 6.35, I am the bread of of life. Jesus often does this in his life. He takes whatever event that there is or a miracle that he has done and he uses an analogy to what he truly desires that they understand and know about him. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. And he says to them in John 6:53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus wants them to have a desire not to fill their temporal appetites, but to be able to fill their spiritual appetites, their need for Christ himself. And he tells this massive crowd that. And in John chapter 6, verse 66, it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Take note of that verse because it says disciples. Whenever you see disciples in the Bible, it doesn't always mean that they're genuine disciples. There were many disciples that had come because they had their appetites filled, because they had their dreams of making Jesus king, because they had these ideas of what they thought Jesus would fulfill in their lives. And Jesus tells them the hard truth, and many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Well, these Jewish leaders for centuries have been promoting not a genuine love for the Lord, not a genuine worship of God, not a genuine picture of who God was and what his commands were. No, they'd been promoting an external religion similar to what the people were thinking. They wanted him to be one who would set up a physical kingdom, that he would overthrow Rome, that he would establish a kingdom in which they would have free meals, they would have all sorts of healing, that they would reign here on earth right now, there. The Jewish leaders had been promoting 
not a heart worship of God, but an external, ritualistic, hypocritical, empty worship of who they thought God was. And that is what is addressed in this particular section of text. And they come by trying to ask of Jesus a question, and they accuse Jesus, and they accuse his disciples of not washing their hands. So we look first here at the accusation that they bring to the Lord Jesus. The Pharisees, in verse 1, and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that there are Pharisees and some of the scribes, they had come all the way from Jerusalem, some 60 miles south of there. They had plenty of time to think of how they were going to address and take care of this problem, which they saw in their eyes was Jesus. Already in Matthew chapter 12, in chapters past, we saw that Jesus would already become to them uh, an enemy of what they wanted. They wanted Jesus dead. They wanted to kill Jesus, but they wanted first to discredit him. They wanted to discredit him in the eyes of the people so that he would no longer have integrity before the people, and they journeyed all the way from Jerusalem, taking plenty of time by which they were going to think about how they were going to discredit him. And they had seen, verse 2, some of his disciples who were eating bread with impure hands that is unwashed. Says in verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. Now, this was an opportunity for them. They saw this as an opportunity because some of the disciples were eating with unwashed hands. Now, this has nothing to do with sanitation. This has nothing to do with the fact that, you know, or, you know, whether or not they had to clean, have clean hands before they ate. Nothing that they could solve with just some Purell or whatever it might be. They were not germophobic. This was about the traditions, verse 3, of the elders being violated. So let me give you some background as to this passage. Because there was a whole body of traditions. There was a whole body of traditions that is believed by and held firmly to by the Jews. And it's a body of traditions called the Talmud. Now, the Talmud taught that God, that God gave the oral law to Moses, gave the oral law to Moses to pass on to great men of Israel. And these great men of Israel to do three things with this oral tradition. They were to give guidance as to how to properly apply it. Number two, they were to make disciples so that the next generation would know how to teach this oral tradition and how to apply it. Number three, they were to build a wall around the law so as to protect it so that the law would not be uh, violated. Okay, so they were, the, 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 the elders were to get this oral tradition from uh, these great men of Israel, they get this oral tradition from Moses, they were to give guidance as to how to apply it, they were to make disciples, and they were also to build a barrier around the law so the law would not be violated. They wanted to be sure that they did not offend God. This is what the Talmud, their tradition, taught had happened. Well, when Israel was uh, deported, out uh, and exiled into Babylon and, and Assyria back in 722 and 586 BC, the people were stunned because they thought that God had abandoned them. 
And they began to think and began to talk about what they must do in order to get back into God's graces. And the scribes began, so when they came back into the land, when the exiles came back into the land, led by Zerubbabel, led by Ezra, led by Nehemiah, the scribes began to talk about how they were going to put this barrier around the law. Because they had the Mosaic Law. They had the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They knew that that was the law of God. But how were they going to apply it so they would please God, so this wouldn't happen again? How were they going to interpret this so this wouldn't happen again? And they began to comment on how to apply the law. And they began to comment. And finally, after a long period of time, around 200 BC, there was a man who put all of these things together, who put all of these oral traditions, all of these comments about the Mosaic Law into a body of work called the Mishnah, called the Mishnah. But the Mishnah wasn't exactly clear all the time when it said, this is how you apply this, this is how you apply this from the Mosaic Law, this is my comment on this, on the Mosaic Law, I'm putting all of these together. That body of work needed some clarification as well, and so they created another large body of work called the Gemara, called the Gemara. And those who are in Jerusalem, those who are scribes and rabbis in Jerusalem, said, well, let's put all of this together. They took the Mishnah, which was an application of the Mosaic Law, and the Gemara, which was a commentary on the Mishnah already, they put these two together, and that's where they got what was called the Talmud. The Talmud. So the Talmud is comprised of two bodies of work. One's called the Mishnah, one is called the Gemara. And in ba- that's where they put it together in Jerusalem. But in Babylon, in Babylon, they saw that and said, well, we've got to put together something too. And they took what their writings were, and put together a Talmud that was four times as big as the one that the Jerusalem had, rabbis had put together. And that is the authoritative work of today among the Jews. The Babylonian Talmud, thousands of pages, thousands of pages of extra-biblical instruction. And what happened was, through all of these commentaries, through all of this applicational material, this the work of the scribes began to be seen as more important than the Word of God itself. They could barely see the Word of God. They had to go through all of these things of what the scribes would say and what the scribes would instruct as to how to apply the law, all of the practical ways to apply the law. In fact, the Talmud says, quote, the words of the scribes are more lovely than the words of the law. Or it also says, my son, attend to the words of the scribes more than the words of the law. So this body of work, this Mishnah and the Gemara, which made up the Talmud, became authoritative to them. These were the traditions that became more important than the word of God. Similar to perhaps like Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, which has three sources of authority. They look at the word of God, but they have what they call their their traditions, or when the, 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 the group of the body of work that they have is also authoritative, and also the Pope, who spe- when he speaks ex cathedra, he's the third source of authority. Well, here, the Jews saw the traditions of the elders, the writing of the scribes, as just as authoritative as the Word of God, and in fact, superseding the Word of God. When it came to washing of hands, they took it very seriously. Verse 4, when they came from the marketplace, this was the accusation, when they come from the marketplace, they do not 
eat unless they cleanse themselves. Now, just to underscore, there's nothing in the Bible that tells us that you have to clean your hands. And even in the Old Testament, for those who are Old Testament, um, for those who are following the Mosaic Law, there's nothing about cleaning your hands when you come from the marketplace. But it's because of their traditions that this had said, well, you know what, you come from the marketplace? Who knows who you may have touched or what you may have touched in the marketplace? You bump into a Samaritan, your hands are dirty, you're unclean. You touch a Gentile, you're unclean. You better wash your hands. You touch a person who's touched a dead body, you're unclean. You'd better wash your hands. So what's the problem here? Well, they say these people come from the marketplace. They haven't even washed their hands. I mean, to them, it was almost, if you come from the marketplace, we've got to break out the hazmat team to clean your hands. Number two, the rabbis taught, secondly, that there was a demon. There was a demon whose name was Shibta. Shibta, the demon, resided on your hands while you slept. And if you did not wash your hands before you ate, you would also eat this little demon, and he would get into your body. Bad. They took hand washing so seriously. There is one entire chapter in the Mishnah on hand washing. In fact, they elevated hand-washing to the point where you would obtain eternal life. The Jerusalem Talmud asserts, quote, Whoever is firmly implanted in the land of Israel, who speaks the holy language, who eats his food in purity as required by hand-washing rituals, and recites the Shema morning and evening, is assured of life in the world to come, unquote. Shabbat 1.3. Another rabbi taught that it would be better to walk four miles out of the way to get water than to eat with unwashed hands. Water jars were, according to Alfred Edersheim, in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, told us that water jars were always ready to be used at every meal. And there were stipulations as to how much water you needed even to wash your hands. The minimum amount of water that you needed to use to wash your hands was a quarter of a log. And a log was uh, five eggshells worth of water. So one and a half eggshells, that's the minimum amount of water that you could use to wash your hands in order to follow the tradition. The water had to be poured on both hands, held with the fingers pointed upwards. It must run down the arm as far as the wrist and drop off from the wrist. For the water was now unclean, having touched the unclean hands. And if it ran down the fingers again, if you tilted it this way and it ran down the fingers again, you would render your hands unclean. The process was repeated with hands held in the downward position. Use more water, rinse your hand. The fingers pointed down. And finally, each hand was cleansed by being rubbed with the fist of another. A strict Jew would do it before every single meal uh, in fact, no, a Jew would do it before every single meal, and a strict Jew would do it in between every course of a meal. Have your salad, you wash your hands. Have your main course, wash your hands. You have your dessert, wash your hands. You'd always wash your hands. Ceremonially, minimum of an eggshell and a half of water. This was an entire chapter's worth in the Mishnah, teaching you how to wash your hands. 
and verse 4. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. Now, you wonder, what's that about? Well, you know, there's one chapter in the Mishnah about washing of hands when it comes to how you wash your, ch- your copper pots, your cups and pitchers. There are 30 chapters, 30 chapters. I don't know what it says now. I, I don't know what it says now with dishwashers, but there must be something that it must be revised. But that is the background of this particular text. The Jews had elevated the tradition of the elders, this Mishnah, the Talmud, to, the, to that which became much more important than the Word of God. Now, just as a sidebar, some people might interpret this wrongly. And I've heard some people use this particular passage in is a sort of an antinomianism in which they will reject whatever rules that some organization has, a complete rejection of all authority and condensate. Well, I, you know what? I can park any way I want in the parking lot. If I want to park across three spaces like that, you can't tell me what to do. I, don't, I can wear whatever I want because nobody cares. You know, the Bible doesn't say with this clothing or that clothing or whatever. It doesn't matter if it's modest or immodest. I can do whatever I want. Sort of a rejection and a rebellion against any organizational stipulation. This has nothing to do with polity or organizational guidelines or whatever it is. This is talking about the elevation of the duty of people in order to gain righteousness before God, in order to please God, in order to somehow be more justified in the eyes of God, in order to obtain eternal life, that is what the Mishnah would have said, the Talmud would have said. In other words, the Jews viewed these traditions as superseding the Word of God. And if you're a good Jew, you say the Shema, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one night and day, and you're good standing, and you wash your hands, you'll gain eternal life. So, that's what promoted this question, designed to attack Jesus. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And notice it doesn't say, why do your disciples not walk according to the word of God? It's the tradition of the elders. Jesus rebukes their empty ritualistic worship. And he says to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. This message is out of Isaiah, Isaiah 29, 13. Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Time and time again, God's prophets communicated to Israel. God's prophets communicated to Israel God's displeasure, his disdain, his hatred of empty ritualistic worship, of worship that just goes through the motion. In Amos chapter 5, verse 21, I hate, God says, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. 
Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take them away from me, the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. Take them away. I hate them. I hate those that come who have a worship that is just superficial, that is empty, that is giving of things to me without a heart that is right with God. Without a heart's worship of God. Malachi chapter 1. This is an interesting passage. If you turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1, it's the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1, the priests, here the priests were giving God Vain worship. Malachi chapter 1. Look at a passage there that's a little more extended. God expresses his wish even for the temple doors to be closed rather than allow vain worship to take place. Verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gate that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. person who's out of vain worship decides they're going to offer whatever it is. God doesn't want that. God doesn't want that. God doesn't want worship that is simply lip service. And here the priests of Malachi's time We're worshiping God in vain. Verse 13, you also say, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Here's the heart of the person. Here is the heart of the person whose worship is vain. And how do you tell? How do you tell for yourself? How do you tell for yourself if your heart is vainful in its worship and your heart is distasteful to God when you come to worship? Maybe you already know. But from this passage, let me show you three things. Three things in particular. Vain worshipers, number one, see worship as boring. Vain worshipers see worship, the worship of God, as boring. Verse 13, how tiresome it is. What a drudgery. It's not exciting, it's no fun. Worshiping God is such a chore. Can you imagine somebody in the Old Testament bringing their worship sacrifice to the altar for the Passover? It gets burned up on the altar, and they stand there saying, well, that was boring. Worship is not about us. It is about God. The question is not, am I happy? The question is not, did I enjoy myself? Did I have a good time at church? Was I entertained? Did I get anything out of it? Oh, I didn't get anything out of that lamb that was burned on the altar. All of those are such self-centered, man-centered questions that are asked. And the sad part about that is that churches will try to cater to those questions, saying, let's make church more fun. The question that is asked is, 
Is God pleased with my heart attitude? Is God pleased with my sacrifice of song? Is God pleased with the inclination of my heart? Do I come in confession and repentance and joy to please God? Do I bring honor and glory to God? Either by my giving or by my singing or by my serving or by my blessing of others throughout my life. Is my heart right with God as I come because I want God to see my heart? But vain worshipers see worship as boring. Number two, vain worshipers do not give their best. Do not give their best. Verse 14, Malachi 1. Cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to God. You know, there are half-hearted givers here. They have someone, why, who has a male in his flock. He says, I'm going to give this to the Lord, and what does he do? He says, you know what? I'm going to give this other one who has a lame leg instead. I'm going to give God the second best They're not generous towards God and their time, their talent, their resources. That is vain worship because even on our acts of service, God calls those acts of service acts of worship. Worship is not just gathering together and singing and and praising God. That's only a part of worship. But worship is also our service to God and our giving to God and our listening to the Word of God and the heart that inclines to give God that is best is one who is worshiping God in a way that He pleases. Vain worshipers do not give God their best. Thirdly, vain worshipers do not see the greatness of God. Vain worshipers do not see the greatness of God. In verse 14, the swindler gives his second best. Why? And God says what? For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. The greatness of God, when people do not see the greatness of God, they fail to worship God from the heart. John Piper writes, if you don't see the greatness of God then all the things that money can buy become very exciting. If you can't see the sun, you'll be impressed with a street light. If you never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. And when you become so blind, the maker of the galaxies and ruler of the nations and knower of all mysteries and lover of our souls become boring, then only one thing is left, the love of the world. For the heart is always restless. It must have its treasure, if not in heaven than on earth. We're all created to worship. If you're not worshiping God, if God is not the greatest pleasure for you, then you know what? You'll be excited about all the worldly things that the world has to offer. Money will become very exciting for you. Buying things will become very exciting for you. Shopping is more exciting than going to church. Worshiping God... Then we become like this person. Why not give God the sheep with the lame leg? 
keep the other one for ourselves or steal a sheep to bring. Why? The good sheep will sell better, make me more money than the one that is lame. Why? Because we love money more than we love God. In other words, empty worship is worship where you'd honestly rather be doing something else. If in your heart you'd honestly rather be doing something else, working, making more money, you'd rather be going to a sports game, you'd rather be outside shopping, you'd rather be sleeping in, you'd rather be studying for an exam, you'd rather be on vacation, you'd rather do something else other than attend or worship God with others. That is wrong. That is shameful. That is a sinful attitude when the glory of God and the maker of the universe, the one who calls you to worship him, and in your heart, your heart desires, I'd rather be doing something else. You know what? Your heart doesn't really want to go to heaven because in heaven, you'll be worshiping God all the time, nonstop, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for all of eternity, and if that's not your heartbeat now, where's your heart? Do you really want to go to heaven where you'll be worshiping God for all of eternity? Do you want to go to heaven where you'll be serving God for all of eternity? Oh, I don't have time to serve God. I don't have time to worship God. I'd rather be doing something else. You know what? When the believers gather together, this is the dynamic that happens. This is the taste of what heaven will be like. Because when we all gather around the throne of grace, the people of God from every tongue and tribe and nation will gather around to sing the praises of God for all of eternity and serve God with whatever responsibilities one has been given. And all glory will go to God. And if that's not your heartbeat to do what you can now to do that, your worship is vain. Can you imagine if you had that attitude, that attitude that I'd rather be doing something else, towards your children, towards your spouse? If you told your kids, I really, really love you, but I'd rather be at a sports game. I'd rather be shopping. I'd rather be on vacation than spending any time with you. What? It's our anniversary? I'd rather be watching football. Do you think they'd believe how much you love them? How much you love them is going to be dictated by what you do, what you say, your heart. Oh, you might say that, just as people may sing these songs and praise God and give glory to God, but where is the heart? Oh, your kids will be able to tell. Your spouse will be able to tell. They'd see right through the hypocrisy. For First Samuel says, God sees right through it too. The Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Biblical worship is a continual lifestyle. Biblical worship is a continual lifestyle. I know that. It's not just on Sundays. It's not just here when we gather together. It's a heart that desires to praise and give glory to God no matter where you are, what you do. All day long, a heart that desires to give honor and glory to God. I know it's a lifestyle. You know, Sunday is my favorite day of the week. And I look forward to worshiping with any group of believers, any group, no matter where I am, whether it's in town or out of town. How about you? Do you only go and worship because it's a ritual? Because you think you owe God. Someone said to me 
many, many years ago, a decade ago, you know, God blessed me with this. I think I better show up for church because I think I owe it to him. You think you owe it to God to show up? These values come at home when you're young. You know, when I was growing up, my mother would remind us, this is just for our family, remind us that Saturday nights were a night in which we would prepare our hearts for Sunday's worship. She taught me that what you do on Saturday nights is you prepare for Sunday worship, not only your heart, but so that you're not frazzled running out on Sunday mornings. Set out the clothes that you're going to wear the next day. Make sure that that's all ready and set out. Make sure you don't stay out too late so that you have enough sleep because the next day you gather with other believers. Don't watch stuff on TV that's going to frazzle your mind, disturb your mind because corporate worship is so important. She didn't have a legalistic attitude about it, but it was something that she just taught us kids. Even the priority of worship, we'd have out-of-town guests and I'd watch my mother time and time again continue to show hospitality and do everything, cook meals for them, take them, out of t- take them around town, spend as much time as she could possibly. But when it came to Sunday morning, she gave them the car keys and told them, you're welcome to join us, but we're going to church this morning. You can wait, you can come too. Otherwise, we'll uh, join you in the afternoon after we're done. It set for us as kids a priority for the worship, for the corporate worship of the church. Even when traveling, we'd always schedule in, what are we going to do Sunday morning? Which church are we going to go to? That was a priority wherever we went on vacation. It just set this idea that worship was important and preparing the heart on Saturday night to be sure that we're not all frazzled running out of the house on Sunday mornings. Again, it wasn't some sort of legalistic standard by which we were trying to gain God's pleasure, gain God's righteous justification. These are just things that helped us to understand the priority of worship. All of these things were taught. Thirdly, though, Jesus not only rebukes them, but he points out their hypocrisy, verse 9. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the command of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. He who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. He points out the commandment of God, one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. This means to show respect to them. This means that you're going to treat your parents with care. This means that you're going to honor your parents and not to do things that would bring shame. This would be something that would honor God. And one of the ways to honor one's parents is to help provide for your parents, to give to your parents when there is a need, to support your parents, especially when they're elderly, especially those who are widows, This would be a practical way of obeying the law of God and to honor one's parents. Well, verse 11, but you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corbin, that is given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Now, Corbin means devoted to God or committed to God. What they would do is, you know, they would have this tradition by which mom or dad could come to their son or daughter and say, you know, I'm not feeling so well, and I can't work as much as I used to. Would you help me pay for my rent? Someone could declare, Corbin, 
over their possessions. They could declare Corbin over their, all their possessions. Everything is dedicated to God, Mom. Everything is dedicated to God, Dad. After all, giving to God is the most important thing, isn't it? And they wouldn't have to give anything. In fact, the rabbis would teach you couldn't give. But when things were dedicated to God under this tradition of declaring Corbin over your possessions, you didn't have to give it right away. You'd still hang on to it. And when you wanted to use it for something for yourself, all you had to do was declare Corbin over it again and it revert back to you. It was a selfish way to cover up their own greed, their own selfishness. Given to God, revert back to me. Given to God, revert back to me. Mom and dad had asked, declared, Corbin, you can't have it, sorry. I want to use it for myself. Corbin, that would really mess up our finance team. Validating the word of God by your tradition, which you've handed down, they would do things like that. Fake worship, piety of the religious establishment was all a sham. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses so many of these things. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, he would always address the issues of the heart, whether it's an issue of anger and murder, whether it's an issue of lust or adultery, whether it's an issue of outward praying, whether it's an issue of fasting, all issues that Jesus addressed and confronted the religious leaders because God is concerned about the heart. He is concerned about worship that comes from the heart that is genuine because God hates empty, ritualistic worship. Going through the motions, just showing up to worship out of duty, just mouthing the words of songs, for instance, because you know them so well, but the mind is disconnected because it no longer realizes what it's saying. Self-centered worship, Sunday-only Christians, putting up a front are all in vain before God because God knows the heart. Is that us? Is that us? What do we do? What do we do if that's us? What do we do if this passage speaks about us and our own vanity and our own worship, our hearts before Him? Well, we realize we recognize it as sinful, and we confess our sin before God, and we turn from that sin, asking God for his help to see the greatness of who he is, that our worship might be great, that our hearts might be inclined to worship him from a pure and a genuine heart. Because the type of worship that God is pleased with is the type of worship that is in spirit and in truth. In spirit meaning the heart that is worshipful towards God and in truth according to sound doctrine in a manner that is pleasing to God. The question for you and I is, is that your heart? Is that your worship of God? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Jeremiah has declared, our heart is deceitful above all else. Who can know it? Your word has also declared that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. 
able to divide, to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So, Father, I pray that your word and your spirit would convict us of our sin. So often, Lord, so often, we know that our hearts may be so lured by this world that we're so enthralled, O oh God, by a street lamp when the glory and majesty of the Son of who you are is so much more fulfilling. That we've traded, Father, the pleasure of this world for the pleasure and the desire to come and kneel before your throne. Worship, O oh God, we pray that you would help us to worship you in a way that pleases you. Not empty ritual, not out of habit, not out of tradition, and never to hold, Father, our own traditions above your word, that we might come before you in a way that pleases you. May all glory and honor be given to you. In Jesus' name, amen.